hppodcraft.com. Albert Keith didn't believe in love at first sight until he saw the portrait. It wasn't just another pretty face. In fact, the features were rather canine. Glaring reddish eyes, a flat snout of a nose, foam-flecked lips, and ears rising to a point. And the crouching body, caked with mold, was only vaguely humanoid. The upper limbs terminating in scale-covered bony claws, the feet below holding a hint of hooves. The creature in the painting was gigantic, and the figure of the man clutched in its claws seemed small by comparison. Despite the layer of dust that covered the picture, Keith was able to note at once that the man's head had been nibbled at. Standing there in the semi-darkness of the dingy back room of the little shop on South Alvarado Street, Keith began to tremble. That is the opening of Robert Block's Strange Eons. That is also the opening for Blocktober, not to be confused with Cocktober, which is being celebrated by rooster and cockerel enthusiasts worldwide. Oh, is that that's what Cocktober is all about? Yeah, of course. I gotta change my decorations. <laughs> but we're here to talk Blocktober at the HP Lovecraft Literary Podcast. I'm Chad Pfeiffer. And I'm Chris Lackey. We're at hppodcraft.com and Patreon. That reader was once again Andrew Lehman, taking a little time to throw down some text before heading out to the HP Lovecraft Film Festival in Portland is this weekend. He'll be out there pushing all the fine products from the H.P. Lovecraft Historical Society. You can catch him there or check out all the goodies at hplhs.org. Yes, and we also have a sponsor this month. That's right, we sure do. Friend of the show Ryan Page wanted everybody to know about his new album, The Night Ocean, which he created under the artist's name Repairer of Reputations. The Night Ocean consists of nine tracks inspired by the work of early 20th century weird fiction authors such as H.P. Lovecraft, William Hope Hodgson, R.H. Barlow, and Robert Chambers. The album was recorded over several years using handmade modular synthesizers. Yeah. What's that all about, Chad? You know, modular synthesizers, they got big knobs on them. The old analog deals. It's pretty cool. Well, I've listened to the album. You're hearing some of it now, and I'll be using music from this album throughout these episodes. So if you like what you're hearing, you're going to want to check it out. Here's the album's description. While the ocean has come to be associated with the droning harmonies, cloying piano, and breathing exercises of New Age music, for much of human history, the ocean represented a vast, unknowable world. For that reason, it is unsurprising that much of the earliest weird fiction authors used the mysteries of the sea as the basis for many of their forays into the unknown. The night ocean is an attempt to create the sense of immensity and alienness through a dense layering of synthesized sounds. While the album is currently available digitally, along with a limited run cassette release in December, you can check it out at repairerofreputations.bandcamp.com. A limited run cassette release. Ryan is really going old school with this one. (laughs) If you dig it, pick it up uh, digitally. In addition to performing music, Ryan is also a horror fiction author. His first story, Fertility Right, will be published in Weird Fiction Review number 9, edited by S.T. Joshi, and published by Centipede Press. All right. Weird Fiction Review number 9 will be out before the end of the year, so please give that a read when it's out. But right now, get the album. It's The Night Ocean by Repairer of Reputations. I've played through it a bunch over the past few days. I really dig it. And we will link out in the show notes. So speaking of homages to Lovecraft, Strange Eons. I knew this was a Robert Block Mythos novel, but I didn't know it was quite like this. Yeah, I just want to warn folks, this book is odd. I'm into it, Mm. but maybe not for the reasons the author intended. And I want to emphasize maybe because 
it doesn't take itself too seriously. It's hard to know. As we all know, Robert Block was a protege of Lovecraft. He had deep admiration for him. Mm -hmm. This book is kind of his love letter to Lovecraft, but not in the way you might think. Lovecraft notoriously had a sense of humor, and Block also knew this. So yes. maybe that's what's going on. I'm not sure. Let's talk <laughs> more about this at the end of our coverage of the book. We'll kind of examine the whole bulk of it when we finish at the end of the month. But I'm, we're going to have to be having this conversation throughout because yeah. it's very jokey. And remember that Robert Block was also like a sketch writer. He liked humor. Yeah. I'm just not sure how serious to take some of this. But <laughs> I'm, only, and I, I'm also only through the first part of the book. I know you've read further. Yes. It, it's split into three parts and I've read the first part. Yeah. Let me read the inside jacket of the book so okay. folks can understand what we're dealing with just right out of the gate. Mm -hmm. What men know is called science. What they have not yet learned they call magic. But both are real. Okay. That's pretty That's good. Pretty good. Yeah. Here we go. In the world of today and the near future, three people inexorably linked by a common interest in the work of H.P. Lovecraft discover that the legendary creatures he created in his fantasies have hideous counterparts in reality. <laughs> that his fiction is incredible fact. <laughs> that his message is a warning. Robert Block, noted author of Psycho and most recently American Gothic and Night World, has established his reputation in the horror mystery field in print and on screen. He has written scores of teleplays and has numerous screenplays to his credit, among them Asylum. Block, a protege of H.P. Lovecraft, at the age of 15 was the youngest member of the so-called Lovecraft Circle. This book, based on Lovecraftian themes is his homage to the man. Hmm. We're once again dealing with a world where Lovecraft didn't dream this stuff up. Uh-huh. It's all real. Yep. <laughs> the dedication on the next page reads, This book is dedicated to HPL, who dedicated himself to other outsiders and gave to them a silver key. I thought that was nice. Dedication. Yeah, that's nice. Of course, Lovecraft wouldn't have been able to read this. He was well deceased by the time this was printed. Strange Eons was published in 1978. To this day, it's pretty hard to find. A friend of the show, William Orlock, lent me his actual copy. It's got this crazy monster on the front of it. Uh -huh. I think it's maybe supposed to be Cthulhu, but it's like kind of yeah. like a bear with tentacles and it's scaly. I don't know what's going on with it. <laughs> I have the same cover. So he a said bear? To, I don't know what it is. <laughs> I didn't see anything in it that suggested a bear, but now I'm extra well, horrified. Well, you know. That kind of looks like a Kraken dragony kind of thing. Sort, I guess. Sure. Something. He sent it to me in the post and some other hard-to-get paperbacks that he had, mm -hmm. and I've been holding on to them for years. I am finally going to send them back after we cover this book. So thank you, William. Thank you, William. This book is indeed difficult to find, and we were worried about that. So we asked our listeners on Patreon last week, should we even cover this? And people responded, over 200 folks responded, and they all said what? yes. Yeah. 200? Over 200. We're like, yeah, go ahead, do it. There were lots of admissions of guilt. You know, people saying, look, to tell you the truth, I don't actually read everything you guys cover. <laughs> <laughs> to which I was surprised and more. No, of course you don't. And I don't expect, we don't Why expect would you, you to. Why bother? Hey, I'll tell you what. We do the show. If he sounds interesting, then go pursue it. Exactly. But I assume that most people use this in a Cliff's Notes fashion. But there was a distinct note of guilt in what a lot of people yeah. were writing. <laughs> don't feel like, guilty. Not I'm at all. I'm finally able to tell you guys. <laughs> but they said, go ahead and cover this. It doesn't matter whether we can get a hold of it or not. So we'll do our best yeah. to convey what's happening in this in this book. And you can make the decision whether you want to track it down. But yeah, this isn't school. No. You can chew gum and listen to this show. It's fine. Yes. So let's jump into the book. It's split into three parts, as I said. And we'll cover most of the first part today. That's called Part One Now. So at the top of the show, we had that intro. Our protagonist, Albert Keith, is at an antique shop and is looking at this painting of a Lovecraftian ghoul. It's got the canine features, the hooves. From the description, it sounds like it could be an actual painting from one of Lovecraft's stories. Not that Albert 
knows this. No. And by the way, he's he's one of these guys, Albert Keith. He's got two first names, and we'll probably flip back and forth between using them. Yes. <laughs> so don't get confused. Albert and Keith are the same person. Yeah. As we discover soon, Albert Keith is a collector of rare and interesting things, but he doesn't have a background in Lovecraft. Hmm. I don't even think he's heard of him. No. Doesn't know anything about him. And in the 70s, that's uh, a lot more likely. It's a much smaller group of folks who are in the know on this stuff. So the owner wants 500 bucks for it, but Albert feels that it's a bit too much. So he asks where the painting came from, and the guy at the shop says he just bought a blind lot from a sale back east. They were tearing down some old storage facility, and they found it lying around maybe for 50 years it was there. Albert really wants the painting. It says he's trembling from collector's syndrome. He knows internally he'll pay any price for this, so haggling's not really going to work. Yeah, and the dealer can see Albert wants it, so he's not going to be haggled at all. The dealer's got some good dialogue here. He says, I could probably get much more for it. All I got to do is stick this here picture in the front window and it'll be snapped up. Pow! Just like that. Those gays from the fancy art galleries over on La Cienega are always cruising around looking for freaky items. (laughs) (laughs) It's like, whoa. (laughs) It's just not the kind of thing you hear in a a shop much anymore. (laughs) (laughs) No. Look. You can buy it from me at this price or I'll sell it to the gays. <laughs> so Albert agrees to the price and he writes him a check. He makes it out to the dealer whose name is Felipe Santiago. The painting is big and they have a hard time getting it into the car, but they manage to fit it in the back seat. And the ghoul is looking at him in the rearview mirror as he drives back to his home in the Hollywood Hills. He's got an old Volvo and it's it's kind of fun to imagine one of Pickman's paintings just crammed in the back of this 70s car. Yeah. There's probably some vintage McDonald's wrappers on the floor back there, too. <laughs> so what were you thinking at this point in the story? I, I wasn't sure. The teaser text on the inside jacket had already let me know, OK, this is going to be a Lovecraft's work was actually based on real stuff thing. And um, oh. we've talked a lot in the past about how I, I don't really like that yeah, I don't necessarily. But since I did know that this, that's what it was going to be. And also because it's from a period where that hasn't, it hadn't been done to death yet. Yeah. I mean, what Robert Black is doing here is somewhat novel. I think Frank Belknap Long had done that. I mean, Lovecraft had been a character in other people's stories before, but this is the first time that I can think of. Yes. Where he's really posing that idea that Lovecraft was some sort of sensitive to all of these forces and was using his fiction to get it out to people. I'm saying, all right, points for originality. This hasn't been done to death yet. I'm going to give it a chance. Yeah, well, I was into it. I thought the writing was tight. I was intrigued. And I love that it was set in L.A. And it made me feel a little homesick. Yeah, no, I definitely love the setting. Although, you know, one thing I was thinking about with Lovecraft, that his fiction was real with with that kind of thing. And I don't know if we've ever touched on this before, but one reason that I don't like it that much is it's kind of in defense of Lovecraft because it's a little insulting, isn't it? You you know, we think of him as being the super creative, imaginative person. Oh, I see. But once all this stuff is real, he's just <laughs> writing it down. And on top of that, he's like a bad journalist because his way of letting people know was by writing questionably <laughs> done, you know, fiction. This is really oblique fiction that nobody... <laughs> yeah, terrible. You should get the credit for writing this stuff. But whatever. In this world, Lovecraft's not as great as one would think. Keith's place is very fancy. He's got a lot of creepy things there. Scary tribal masks, weird statues, a shrunken head. He cleans off the painting. It makes the colors really pop. There's some really good writing here, actually. Lots of vocabulary that I didn't bother looking up, but you get the point (laughs) from the context. Gradually, the nacreous surface cleared and brightened so that the crouching creature emerged in bold relief against its background of shadow. The flesh tones became livid blendings of pustulant ochre and mica-like green, and the red eyes flared with renewed intensity. Hitherto undisclosed details were revealed, the tiny black mites clinging to the furry forearms, 
the patches of Usnia Humana on the surface of the victim's skull, and the minute gobbets of flesh lodged between feasting fangs. Yeah. That's some amazing stuff. I love the uh, the tiny black mites clinging to the furry forearms. I don't remember that being no. described in Pikmin's model. No, I don't it's think so. Pretty interesting little detail. So as he looks at it, a voice from behind him says, Good God! And it's his buddy, Simon Waverly. He's a bearded guy, and I assume he's wearing a turtleneck. It doesn't say that he is, but I just... Of course he's wearing a turtleneck. It's the 70s, and he's got a beard. Come on. Well, he's got big, dark glasses, too. Yeah. So he's got the beard, the dark glasses. He's got to have a turtleneck and the blazer with patches on the elbows. Absolutely. But it says that his dark glasses and his beard almost concealed his expression. And so, right away, I was like, well, this is later on going to be a disguise or something. Huh? If somebody's mentioned that this is concealing their face, oh, like in the the resurrected, the adaptation yes. of Charles Dexter Ward, um, Doctor Ash, Doctor Ash, he's got the beard <laughs> and the dark glasses. So every time you see him, you know. Anyway, I I, I was actually kind of wrong about that, but I at least had an inkling that it was going to be used in some way, which it is. I didn't read the interior jacket. I, I just picked up and just started reading it. So I was into this. I didn't know that this whole Lovecraft thing was going to happen right here. Oh, because okay. Simon is shocked yeah. uh, when he sees this ghoul painting because he goes, that's a Lovecraftian ghoul. By the way, Simon just walked into the house because the, the door was open. He didn't materialize at it. No. Out of nowhere. <laughs> uh, Albert's a little absent-minded and he keeps leaving uh, leaving the front door open. Well, he had a big painting to bring in, so. Yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah, it makes sense. Would have been confusing. But the thing is, Simon just clocks this thing as a Lovecraftian ghoul and he says H.P. Yeah. Lovecraft and then Albert's like Who, who's H.P. Lovecraft and then I was like oh no oh, so that's what this it. is yeah, yeah. yes Albert he doesn't know anything about Lovecraft and Simon fills him in since you all listen to this show you know everything <laughs> that was discussed yeah Block builds these little summaries of Lovecraft stories into the text and also a lot of biography on Lovecraft mm-hmm. and he cites sources of where you can actually go look this stuff up and find these things name checks the books and the authors he works into the story but this is almost like Robert Block version of our podcast or at least the initial <laughs> run in a way yeah i mean it struck me that maybe as i was going on just through this first part that could possibly be like 75 percent of the purpose of this book because like you say there's that dragon monster kraken slash bear thing <laughs> <laughs> on the cover coming out of the ocean and then of course it says by the author of psycho yeah. and i could imagine seeing this book at paperback traders or at the book emporium when i was a kid sure and i totally would have picked it up because i would have just you know hey it's a horror title and I like Psycho. But then, boom, you basically get pointed in the direction of all of this Lovecraft stuff. So it's like right. him trying to open this gate, saying to everybody, here, here's all the things you got to check out, but it's in story form. Right. So they think maybe it, the painting was a piece that was inspired by Lovecraft's story, Pickman's model. But the name signed on it is R. Upton. And then, of mm-hmm. course, Simon knows that the actual name of the character in the story was Richard Upton Pickman. Simon gets this idea that Lovecraft might have actually based the story on a real guy. And Albert immediately thinks this is a hoax of some kind. But Simon says, you know, that doesn't make sense. Forty years ago, Lovecraft was a nobody. I would immediately suspect Andrew Lehman. <laughs> Even then. Even in 1978, he would have been a wee lad, but... Could have been. I'm sure he was already making really authentic Lovecraftian (laughs) prop replicas. (laughs) So Simon wants to know more. But wouldn't you immediately think this is a hoax? Of course. It's so funny the way that Albert says, well, clearly this is a hoax based on the story. And Simon goes, or maybe the story was based on something real. Get out. (laughs) Simon wants to know more about how he got this painting. And he mentions Mm -hmm. that uh, he found it at the Steelers. The painting was bought in a lot. And there could be more stuff. Which, of course, Simon wants to get his hands on. Because he really thinks, you know, if we can look through more of the things that this painting was sold, we could identify whether it's a hoax or if this is the real Richard Upton Pickman, if that's a real person. Right. Then we can establish whether 
it's what you said, which is totally likely, or what I said, which is insane. So. <laughs> so in the morning, Albert calls the dealer and makes an appointment to see him that night after closing. Simon mentions that that's fine because he's going to be busy at Acres of Books in Long Beach all day. So that'll work out. It's just a name drop of the store. Acres of Books was really awesome, huge secondhand bookstore in Long Beach. It uh, uh, was opened in the 30s. And I actually think it got some designation from the Long Beach Historical Society. It was supposed to be oh, protected, wow. but it actually closed in 2008. Oh, whoa. That's not that long ago, really. Yeah, not that long ago. But it was a favorite of Bradbury and Jack Vance. I'm sure oh. Robert Block loved it, too. It's a, it's a very storied, famous uh, bookstore. Acres oh, of Books. wow. Too bad it's gone now. Hey, he talks about the Santa Ana winds here. And again, maybe a little... L.A. homesick. Not the hay fever part of the Santa Anas, but, you know, it just kind of took me back. Although in the text, it calls them Santana winds a lot, which was making me laugh. Because I was like, is that weather that's created by Carlos Santana rocking so hard? <laughs> yes. Anyway, they get it together. That Later that night, they go together to go see this dealer so that Simon can get more information. Already, they're in that kind of investigator mode. They go down to the shop, but nobody's answering. They go around the back and they see the dealer's car's there. So they know that he's there and they find the back door open. When they go in, they see the place has been ransacked. They grab makeshift weapons and look around for the dealer. Albert had already been feeling pretty unsettled. He thinks it's the effects of that painting. Mm. Having, you know, spent the night with it looking at him, but uh, definitely he's starting to feel the horror when they come in here. They already think something must be amiss. They find the dealer in the bathroom with his arm and head out of the window. When they pull him in, they see that his face has been ripped off. No! Just like in The Lurking Fear. And then Simon says, this is just like in The Lurking Fear. <laughs> And I was like, oh, man, this is going to be the whole book, isn't it? Yeah. What were you thinking? I Well, I thought, okay, maybe this is going to be like the movie Urban Legend, where it was like there was a killer on a campus and all of his crimes were mimicking different urban legends. Oh. This is going to be like a killer who's mimicking Lovecraft stories. Yeah. Not a terrible idea, except that how far I didn't know how far you could take that because the guy getting his face ripped off in the lurking fear is about as graphic as it gets yeah. in Lovecraft stories. Other than that, what could you possibly copycat mm -hmm. as a murder? Other things in Lovecraft stories are, are supernatural. How are you going to copycat murder somebody by being a gigantic monster's hand underneath <laughs> a, a, a pyramid? You know, there's just like <laughs> right. no way to... What else was confusing about this is I assume that these weren't the creatures from the lurking fear that did this. Right. I assumed it was somebody that had done this because he was the dealer that sold the painting. Yeah. So it is a copycat killing. Mm -hmm. which was extra confusing since the book jacket told me all the stuff was real. So I was like, so there's a copycat killer, but then also the stuff is real. Okay, that's strange. So yeah. I don't know. I was confused at this It's point. a little confusing. So after uh, they discover him, the guys, they just leg it out of there. Uh, they get back to Simon's house. Simon fills Albert in on the story, The Lurking Fear. Yeah, again, he gives a synopsis of the story that's really well done. And I wish we'd had it back when we covered that episode. <laughs> I could have just read it right out of the book. So Albert feels like they should have called the police, but Simon thinks that they would be in jail as primary suspects. I was thinking this wasn't a good idea because he wrote a check. There was probably, he was scheduled to show up there at the place. Yeah. Wouldn't he be like the first suspect anyway? It's so stupid. I mean, I just got to think that maybe Block wanted to economize by not getting the police involved. Like, oh, sure. I don't want to go through these scenes. But so just say that they made a call. Or stopped by and don't... Yeah, they could. this exact scene, he picks it up because we got back from the police station. There you go. Yeah, you know, exactly. That's all just skip ahead say. because I don't need... All I need to just say, the police were unhelpful because I know they will be anyway. Yeah. One sentence. That's all you needed. You know, but you're right. I mean, they left evidence everywhere. Yeah. Even if the cops didn't fingerprint or, you know... or See, I didn't even think about the fact that he wrote him a check and that he had made an appointment with him. I'm just yeah. thinking... People might have seen you parked outside in your car, two dudes with one guy with big smoky glasses and a beard hanging out, <laughs> checking this place out for a long time, then finally getting out and going around back. If anybody yeah. saw you guys do that, yeah, 
and then you don't tell the police that you found the body. You yeah. really look suspicious. Like, oh my it, god, yeah, I was having a hard time suspending disbelief. Of course, it, it doesn't pan out for for no. you know they're they're fine. <laughs> Simon thinks the dealer might have been connected to Lovecraft, and uh, Simon, when he was getting his weapon, he found this piece of paper. He pocketed it before they found the body. Uh-huh. And it's a letter in Lovecraft's handwriting with his 10 Barn Street address on it. And it says, Dear Upton, I write in some trepidation. In view of what you disclosed to me in Boston, verbally and above all visually, I feel it imperative that we meet again as quickly as possible. I must indeed see that other work you hinted about. Never in my wildest imaginings did I dream of the existence of such dot dot dot. And the paper has been ripped, so that's all he has of the letter. Of course, Simon recognizes this as Lovecraft's handwriting. And from his address as well. He's like, anybody who's seen Lovecraft's writing would recognize it. And he whips out a copy of Marginalia, which <laughs> is a collection of Lovecraft's work and some essays that was published by Arkham House in the 40s. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's got some of Lovecraft's writing in there, as well as that little map he drew of his apartment, of his study. Mm-hmm. You yeah. remember that? Yep. And again, I thought, possibly Andrew Lehman? <laughs> because I do believe that Andrew actually made a font out of Lovecraft's writing. He, he actually did. designed an entire font. So he did. If somebody would have the tools, it would be our reader today. So Simon thinks that someone or a group of someone's is after that box and the painting. Uh, they track down the dealer somehow. What was in that box and why do they want it? Who knows? Uh, it's late and Simon offers Albert a spare room, but Albert decides he wants to go home. Simon is obsessed with solving this mystery while Albert just wants to forget it. But when Albert gets home, he discovers the painting is gone. So in the early morning, Simon comes over and Albert shows him where the perp or perps broke in. Simon points out that Albert paid the dealer with a check, which has his address on it. So Albert says they got what they want. The matter is over. But Simon thinks that they might come after him to finish the job. They might. And again, no contact with the police. Mm -hmm. Like a guy got his face ripped off. Yeah, that's pretty serious and if these people broke into your house also i'd just be mad he spent 500 the first thing he did in the story was spend 500 dollars on this thing yeah so if he doesn't quite yet believe all this stuff why doesn't he want his property back yeah it seems weird and also well simon says hey have you ever been in trouble with the fbi and albert goes no and he goes well then they don't have our fingerprints on file and we've got nothing to worry about which i thought was hilarious (laughs) just ignore that is as if that's the only police are like well we don't know what these fingerprints don't match anybody so case closed let's move on (laughs) That's the only thing, the only thing we use in police work or finger. Right. So anyway, Simon tells Albert that he needs to read up on Lovecraft and he dumps a bunch of books of Lovecraft's on him, as well as some biographies. DeCamp's Lovecraft, Long's Dreamer on the Nightside, and Conover's Lovecraft at Last. Simon insists they go over them to find some answers to help them fight against whoever killed and stole to get the stuff. Right, like Simon's saying, you need to go on the lam for a while because whoever stole this might come back. Yeah. Again, call the police, but okay. He decides he's going to check into a motel somewhere. But when he does it, he gives him that huge stack. Read all of this stuff because it's going to it's gonna help us somehow. <laughs> yeah. So the motivation here is pretty tenuous, but, you know, whatever. I'm in. Sure. So Albert goes and he stays at this motel and he reads all, all day for a few days, actually, I think. We get the bio on Lovecraft here and the stuff about Dareleth and Wandry publishing it after his death. He doesn't take Waverly's advice about reading the fiction first. He actually reads the biographies first. Mm -hmm. And there are just a few pages going through everything that's basically on our very first episode of this show. Again, I wish we'd had it back then. So Albert sees a lot of himself in Lovecraft. They were both introverts, both been through divorces, and liked to travel. The big difference between he and Lovecraft is that Albert had this inheritance. I mean, he's pretty well-to-do. Money's really no object. So he's been able to pursue whatever he wants his whole life. And it's allowed him to also keep his health. So he thinks under the same circumstances, HPL might have had a longer, better life. 
Mm-hmm. He also makes mention of how the different biographies paint different pictures of Lovecraft that are paradoxical, that are contradictory. He says it's really hard to get a full picture of who this man is, which I think is still true. Mm-hmm. And then he digs into the fiction and we get more summaries of stories. He goes through the Dunwich Horror, the Shadow of Ransmith, the Whisperer in Darkness, the Call of Cthulhu, basically nutshell synopses of what all these stories are. So for three days, Albert reads and hangs out in this hotel. Uh, Simon and Albert meet up again, now with a knowledgeable Albert. They have a strange conversation about sex and the intermixing of humans and other creatures. They talk about in Innsmouth, uh, the Waitleys in Dunwich Horror, Arthur German, Rats in the Walls, Lurking Fear, all to get to the idea that Lovecraft was trying to tell us that monsters are in our midst. Despite having a Puritan attitude towards sex, there sure is a lot of it in his fiction, although not explicitly, at least the results. Simon is postulating that, yeah, that's to show that there's some kind of mating of man and, and monster. It's a warning of some kind. Because this is something that's also in all, all folklore. Simon talks about there are mixtures of men, animal, monsters. There's not dog boys, however. He doesn't talk about dog Not boys. directly. He doesn't say that. But I think it is implied. <laughs> it's a lot of this, maybe all this is real stuff we've heard before in various stories. So Simon thinks Lovecraft knew something. Albert thinks it's ridiculous, but Simon insists no one really knew who Lovecraft was. And his letter writing was a way that he kept people at arm's length to hide his secrets. It is true. Uh, the people we tend to think of as close companions to Lovecraft either didn't meet him at all, or if they did, it was a brief couple of times. Yeah. So he very well could have been a, some kind of supernatural investigator. Sure. I guess. That, that's <laughs> justification enough. Uh, he thinks Lovecraft discovered the real horrors after returning to Providence after living in New York when he would go on his late night walks. Maybe he stumbled onto something like the artist Upton. Simon says that he found out there was a real artist called Richard Upton. He was born in Boston in 1884 and died in 1926. He returned from a trip from Providence, then discovered that all of his paintings were stolen, and then he shot himself. Or so the police report goes. So Simon is off to Boston to find out about this place where they got the lot and the painting. Uh, he plans on leaving the next morning. He found from this L.A. book dealer, uh, Beckman is this guy's name, about where he might go in Boston to find what he's looking for. And in exchange, he's going to give Beckman a cut of whatever he finds, hopefully original Lovecraft manuscripts. Yeah, Beckman's funding the trip, so whatever you bring back, 50-50. Uh, that night, we get a typical Lovecraftian nightmare, old gods, Migos, all the old standards. Right, Albert is having these nightmares, we assume from... I mean, if you spent three days in the motel reading nothing but Lovecraft, <laughs> you're probably going to have some nightmares. There is a, a crazy earthquake in the dream, and he picks up the phone, and he calls Beckman, the book dealer, and someone answers the phone, and he asks uh, Mr. Beckman, and a creepy voice on the other end says, You fool, Beckman is dead. <laughs> and I'm like, oh man, that is... That's really stretching it right there. <laughs> yeah, if it's that urban legend copycat killer thing, so did they kill a guy and then just wait by the phone hoping <laughs> somebody could call? Yeah. So they could say that line? Yeah, that's what I was thinking. Like, how long was he waiting? Going, somebody's going to call eventually. It's entirely possible that it didn't happen, right? Well, yes, because Albert wakes up. He's got the phone in his hand, and then he goes, wait, did I dream that, or did that happen? I don't know. Regardless, it was some silly shit. <laughs> So uh, the paper says that there was an earthquake uh, that night in Los Angeles, a little one, 3.5, didn't do much damage. And he also sees that Beckman was killed in his home that night. Yes, he was stabbed to death. And despite having tons of valuables around, nobody took anything. So there wasn't evidence of a robbery. And so he tries to get a hold of Simon, but he's left for Boston already. And he remembers, you fool Warren is dead from the statement of Randolph Carter. So he thinks the person on the phone knew Lovecraft's work. So I was like, okay, he doesn't think that it's actually some monster. It's somebody like a copycat. But even so, that's so crazy. Yeah, I know. that. What's well, the copycat <laughs> guy just waiting by the phone. It's ridiculous. 
So that night, he gets a call from Simon. The warehouse was set to be demolished tomorrow, so he had a chance to look around before it was knocked down. When he looks through the warehouse, he can't find too much, but there's some luck because rats have apparently... Whoever owned this warehouse hasn't been taking very good care of it. And rats have been getting through the stuff that's in there, grabbing up items and making nests. And that's why he was able to find this mysterious oilskin book, which probably would have been destroyed by the rats. But because of its cover, it was protected. Uh, He says the owner of the warehouse got a lot of strange calls from unknown people asking about this box. Uh, Simon tells Albert he is sending him an envelope and not to open it until he arrives. Albert's like, well, why can't I open it? And he goes, well, I'll explain yeah. when I get there. I can't tell you over the phone. Weirdly, Simon doesn't seem totally surprised when he's informed that Beckman is dead. I, yeah. You'd think he would be scared to death, but he goes, well, hmm, okay. <laughs> Better keep investigating. <laughs> so the next day, Albert gets the letter and he doesn't open it. And he gets a call from Simon saying that he's sorry he's running late, but he has a cold. And he broke his ankle getting out of the plane. Mm-hmm. So it's like a you know double whammy there. Uh, Albert says, well, I can wait if you want to get better. And Simon's like, no, no, you got to come over. I, I, I got to explain to you what's in the letter. Make sure to bring that package I sent you when you come over. Uh-huh. He's very clear about that. So this guy answers the door. He seems to be a nurse of some kind, and he shows Albert in. Albert goes into the study. The study was dim, and it took Keith a moment for his eyes to adjust to the semi-darkness. The lamp on the desk had been turned down to low. Waverly sat in a big chair at the far corner, his left foot resting on a hassock and encased in a plaster cast. Despite the stifling warmth, he wore a long-sleeved woolen bathrobe and a neck scarf, but that portion of his pale features not covered by the beard bore no trace of perspiration. Does this feel like a joke to you? I don't even know. I mean, I just feel like he's trying to use little bits of story to... He's just doing a Mad Lib of different Lovecraftian moments. And then using them to synopsize the stories again to hopefully get young readers interested in the Lovecraft stuff, I guess. I don't it's know. It's so heavy-handed. It seems it seems like a joke. Like, it's... Yeah. It's I, I couldn't believe it when this was happening. I saw it coming, too, especially when he was like, bring the package and uh, yeah. come right away. I was like, they are not going to do Whispered. It suddenly occurred to me, oh, that's right. This is the guy with the beard and the glasses. I feel like I've read a lot of Block stuff mm-hmm. to sense that he does have a sense of humor about things. Oh, yeah. And this doesn't feel like his normal, like this seems pretty silly for him. So I feel like it's intentional to a degree. I think it's a big in-joke. Yeah. I I really don't think he's trying to scare anybody right now. (laughs) Of course, it's just like a Lovecraft story, but Albert is clueless. He doesn't go, wait a minute, this is just like Whisper in Darkness that I just read. It just doesn't even occur to him. So Simon has him open the letter. He doesn't move, just like the story, which is a map. On the map, there is Lovecraft's handwriting. And Simon insists... Oh, he goes, oh, you know what? This is all a hoax. I can't believe we fell for it. You should just leave it alone. Yeah, suddenly it's a it's a hoax. <laughs> this package is all ridiculous. It's a made-up prop. I was wrong the whole time. Shouldn't have taken that flight. It's a big joke. And then Albert just immediately goes, yeah, the murders were not a joke. Those people are dead. Yep. And then he goes, oh, okay, yeah, I guess now that you say that. And the nurse comes up with a gun. Yeah, right, right out of nowhere. Yeah, give me the map. And so just then, because he looks like he's going to get shot, the whole place begins to shake. It's another earthquake, but this one is huge. And the whole house starts to cave in, the ceiling caves in, the nurse is hit, and so is Albert. He goes unconscious. I, again, I thought this was a little bit of a cleansing bolt of lightning. Yeah. Kind of uh-huh, situ- uh-huh. I mean, it was, it's in L.A., so let's use an earthquake instead, but it was the same kind of thing. You know, we yeah. get to this really tense situation and then explosion. Yeah. Albert awakens to find himself injured on the head, but not too badly. The nurse, however, has had his head crushed, so he is dead. Mm-hmm. And Simon is gone, but there's something on the chair. Three things. Can you guess what they are? Three unmistakable objects. 
the face and hands of Simon Waverly. Oh, come on. Uh, Albert drives off. Uh, his car is intact, fortunately. There's a lot of devastation from the earthquake, but uh, he's able to get back to his house where uh, the damage was minimal. He turns on the television, finds out the earthquake was the 7.1 centered in downtown. Hmm. He recounts the whisper in darkness for those that have not read it what happened to the real simon was this done by a cult like the esoteric order of dagon did lovecraft know about this cult yeah before albert thought of himself like lovecraft but now he really feels like he's one of his protagonists he says he recalls the narrators of such tales introverted imaginative highly neurotic Often they doubted the validity of their own experiences, admitted that they might be hallucinating or actually insane. I don't actually understand the purpose of the fake face and hands. I don't get it. Was this one of the cultist guys hiding? They were just imitating him so that they could get the goods. So it wasn't an alien doing it. It wasn't a... Maybe. Or maybe they're implying that the Migo are involved in this cult, which is kind of strange because if this is a Cthulhu thing, the Migo, they were into Shabnigra. They weren't into Cthulhu, so... If it's a little like that phone call where you're going to quote the line, I assume that you wanted the person... To find the hands in the face. But how could you have anticipated that earthquake? Like, what was the, yeah. the plan here? I don't really... <laughs> I don't it's re- Yeah, it doesn't make a lot of sense. It's bizarre. So um, he thinks about the Cthulhu cult from the Call of Cthulhu, how they were in the South Pacific. And maybe that is where all this is coming from. The news said also that there was a huge earthquake in the South Pacific. Hmm. So Albert looks at that map that was in the envelope because he was still in his hand when he got knocked out. Yeah. And it gives a latitude-longitude which is the same as the news is reporting about this earthquake. Of course, it's in Lovecraft's handwriting, and Lovecraft wrote the word Raleigh. Oh, boy. So Albert decides that he is going to go to the South Pacific, and he settles all of his affairs and books a flight to Tahiti, and I think that is a swell place to leave it. (laughs) Yeah, we can leave it there for now. Maybe if it is true that there was this earthquake and Raleigh's risen from the ocean, Mm -hmm. we know that that leads to all kinds of artists and sensitive types having dreams and stuff. Maybe it also leads to people having all kinds of Lovecraftian incidents in their lives. (laughs) Somehow. Maybe. maybe. There's some kind of cosmic force that's guiding him to have these items. Mm -hmm. It's a hard one to justify. (laughs) Because I've read a bit further in the book than you. Uh Uh, the The next section of it is a little bit more thoughtful, I think. And there's actually some really interesting ideas that get thrown around. Okay, cool. So it's less silly than this first part, for sure. It's still silly, but it's still got some. Yeah. It's got some good gems that actually make you think a little bit. Well, for li- for listeners of this show, and you know, for people who are into the Lovecraft stuff, it's a really fun read because you do know what all this stuff is. Yeah, I wonder what it would have been like if you weren't aware of of Lovecraft at all. Yeah, I don't know. I don't think I can't imagine that some of this would be really uninteresting as he's describing stories you haven't read. Yeah. But then again, does does that make our show uninteresting? Wait. A minute. <laughs> <laughs> well, sir, our patrons would disagree with you, but they think it's very interesting enough to support our show. That's true. Let's name some of them right now while we're while we're talking about them. I, I want to thank some of these patrons. I want to thank Samwise Kreider. Aw, Nathan Adam, thank you so much. Andrew Plett. Samantha Hickey, you're awesome. Tim Hoff, thank you. Ross Clark, thank you so much. Austin Taro. Frederick Lilliablad. Paul Freeland. And Jamie Ashworth, thank you so much. Thanks so much, guys. There's actually a thrilling conclusion to this first part of Strange Eons, mm-hmm. uh, which we'll start with in the next episode. It, yes. it did take a turn that I didn't quite expect. Me too. <laughs> at the end, <laughs> Albert's little bit of the story here does does conclude in a kind of a strange way. I don't know if he'll be back or not, though, because I haven't read much more. So, And make sure you check out our sponsor this month, the repairer of reputations 
That's the artist. Their album, The Night Ocean. That's right. Check it out. And I hope you've enjoyed listening to it as we've been uh, going through the show. We're going to be playing it all month, so we'll be sure to mention it again. Please go there and pick it up. And that's all we have until next time. I'm Chad Pfeiffer. I'm Chris Lackey, and you've been listening to the H.P. Lovecraft Literary Podcast. At hppodcraft.com and Patreon. hppodcraft.com. Hippie Podcast.